Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Chuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. My name is Michael Turton. I'm a longtime writer and commenter on Things Taiwan. And today you're listening to Formosa Files. And we're going to talk about some of the what ifs and contingencies of Taiwanese history. Okay, quick pause. If you've lived in Taiwan for any length of time and haven't read anything by Michael Turton, um, maybe you don't like to read? <laughs> Just kidding. But actually, only sort of, as Michael Turton has been writing articles, newspaper columns, and blogging about Taiwan for decades. He writes on everything from super local political info, to history, society, to you name it. He's also a fierce advocate for Taiwan, pushing back hard when the international media says stuff like, tensions are rising between Taiwan and China. As John Ross put it in his 2020 book, Taiwan in 100 Books, Michael Turton hears that and asks, okay, but who is raising these tensions? And I'll give you a hint, Turton doesn't think it's Taiwan. And I gotta say that today's conversation jumps around history and might be a tad confusing for some people to follow. But what I'm hoping for, at least, is that when some of you hear about some of these what-ifs and maybe find them interesting, you'll go read about them and learn more about Taiwanese history. And I'll post as many links from Turton and others on our website to make exploring these ideas as easy as possible. Okay, that's my little speech. Let's get back to the program. Thank you so much for being on the program, Mr. Turton. Well, it's my pleasure. I've long wanted to meet you. You know, I've heard so many good things about you from my friends. Oh, likewise. You know, when I contacted you to uh, see if you'd be willing to come on the show, as you know, this is a history podcast, but I was so happy when you mentioned that you would like to talk about historical what ifs, because John Ross, the, the co-host, he and I often dabble in this kind of stuff, but we can't really do it because, you know, we're supposed to be telling a story and we've got time constraints. So this is making me really, really happy. And I think what I asked uh, when we first talked was that you come up with perhaps your top five favorite what ifs. So <laughs> if you're ready to go, uh, what's number one? Uh, I got Spanish, Dutch, English, German, American. How's that? Maybe a maybe a Japanese bonus because, you know, they were poking around here in the 17th century. Yes, they were. And uh, so one of the reasons I, that I often think about contingency in the Taiwan context about the what ifs is because one of the themes of Chinese propaganda is the inevitability of Taiwan, you know, quote, going back, unquote, to China. This is inevitable, like monologuing constantly on this theme. And so they locate this in history, of course, which we all know is fake propaganda history. So one of the things that I like to do with this is to say no, actually, Taiwan as a Chinese island is an anomaly of history. You know, first of all, for most of human history, there have been no people from China here. Han Chinese people. Yeah, there's been no Han Chinese people. There were, of course, Austronesians who crossed over from the Asian mainland when there's no such thing as China. But the Han arrival here is very, very recent. And for most of human history, Taiwan's trade networks have not been oriented on the mainland of Asia. They've been oriented south towards Thailand and then across the isthmus of the Kra isthmus there. And then even over to India, there's a site in southern Taiwan where there's uh, there was a glass bead factory and they would import 
blanks. This is the, the Austronesian peoples back in the day. They would import glass blanks from India and they would chop them sorry, up. To make you said glass blanks? What does that mean? Yeah, they would they would import like tubes, little tubes of glass, pieces of glass, okay. which they would cut up to make beads. And this mm. is this is, you know, this is part of a network that stretches, you know, much bigger than the Mediterranean, right? I mean it's it's How a long very ago large this? network. Uh this was I think around the second or third century AD. I can't remember offhand. And of course, the ironworking sites, the ironworking in southern Taiwan also came in from India. The technique looks like it came in from India. So you have these old, old patterns of engagement. And then there's the jade earrings that were made from Taiwan jade, which was traded down to the Philippines and turned into earrings and then sent all over Asia. When I was in Malaysia 12 years ago, I went to Batunia Cave. And at the cave, there's an archaeological site with an earring carved from Taiwan jade. So you have to read this text of history without automatically locating Taiwan in China. You have to separate yourself from that idea. And then once you do that, once you see a Taiwan that's oriented on other places, Philippines, Vietnam, you know, all these Malaysia, all these places where Austronesians went and which later the indigenous peoples of Taiwan traded with, then you can start thinking about, well, Taiwan's China connection is a very recent anomaly of history. What could have happened here? And of course, for me, one of the first things that I like to think about is what could have happened with the Spanish who were here very early. And one of their captains- Mostly in the north of Taiwan, right? But they sailed past Tainan. And one of the captains recommended, looked at that huge bay there, right? This harbor and said, whoa, we got to put in a board here and recommended that. But of course, they went to the north and the Dutch beat them to Tainan. But uh, it's interesting to think about what might have happened if the Spanish had taken over because one- the hand from China are here because the Dutch brought them over because they could tax them. But the Spanish didn't do that. They were afraid of the hand. They didn't like the, you know, the competition for power in their own colonies. There were pogroms against Chinese in Manila in what, right. the 17th century? Yeah. So the Spanish would never have brought over hand settlers. That would have been a political danger to them. Instead, what they would have done was what they did in Philippines. They would have attempted to, what's the word? I don't know, Hispanize? Turned the, yeah, they would have Hispanized the Austronesian peoples just like they did in Philippines. And that could have meant like a continuous empire of sorts from Taiwan down to the Philippines. And they, they would have been connected culturally, speaking Spanish. Yes. And Austronesians and similar life ways. You know, you go down to Philippines and what are you eating? Uh, sticky rice with pork in the center wrapped in leaves. Just the same kind of stuff that we eat here. But the thing is, we would now think of Taiwan as part of Philippines, which we would talk about, oh, Philippines is Taiwan's closest neighbor. And look at all the social and cultural links. I mean, think about it. We would not have hand settlers. Instead, everyone here would be some kind of Filipino or Formosan. And there would be no hard and fast difference between indigenous people who are from Austronesian origin and hand people. And we'd be Catholic, theoretically. Oh my God, let's not, let's not talk about that, okay? <laughs> I grew up Catholic. <laughs> another, another question, how did the Spanish approach the idea of mixing, as in marriage and, and kids and this kind of stuff? Were they okay with that? I know that the Dutch in their day, at least in the early times, they were pretty much okay with uh, marrying indigenous Taiwanese as long as you converted to whatever religion and stuff. So would we have uh, like a whole mixed race of people or would it be kind of segregated into Spanish and then uh, Austronesian people? I would assume it would be a lot like the Philippines today. 
remember the Filipino elites are largely come from old Chinese families, right? The Aquinos and the Marcos and all those people, they're, they're Chinese families who took Spanish surnames and converted to Catholicism. And I expect that we would have a Chinese merchant overlay somewhere, either in the south around Tainan or in the north around Jilong, or in maybe even in Kaohsiung, somewhere where there's a port. And then there would be lots of intermarriage and lots of, um, lots of what's the word we want? Intermixing? <laughs> what's the polite yeah, word? I don't know what the politically correct word is these days. In Chinese, we say huanxue, which is just very much just a mixed blood. That's an ugly one, I think. <laughs> yeah, not the best. Anyway, there would be a lot of that. What do the Filipinos say? That everyone has a friar as a grandfather or something? So anyway, the Spanish are the first and, and most obvious one to me. We would have a completely different world here. And no one would be talking about Taiwan as a Chinese polity or the greater China. All that stuff wouldn't exist. It would be the most northerly island of the Philippines, as you said. Yeah. And then the Dutch, right? So the Dutch come after the Spanish. And you can imagine what this place would be like if it had been a Dutch colony like the Indonesians were for 300 years. I mean, the event that enabled Koshinga to defeat the Dutch and take their fort was that a disgruntled, I think he was German, a disgruntled German guy came over to Koshinga and told them how they could take the fort because they themselves had no idea how to take the fort in Anping down there in Tainan. The Dutch had far superior fort technology, as all the Europeans did. Have you read Tony Andrade's book on gunpowder and the gunpowder age and cannons? And that yeah, was one of the ways they held onto those enclaves. Interestingly, he points out that the Chinese didn't, not because they couldn't make the cannons, but because their fortresses, their city walls were way better than European walls. They were like, you know, 10 or 20 meters of tamped earth topped with brick. There's no way, even today, modern artillery won't go through that. So the Chinese never developed these big wall busting cannon that the Europeans did. Because the European city wall was what? Like, you know, a meter or two meters of stone with some gravel fill. You could put a cannonball through that. So what they did was to fight these big city busting cannon that they developed really amazing fort technology. When they met European fortifications, they were they were baffled by them as Koshinga was. I mean, how long did that siege last before that nine German months, right? Them? Yeah, nine months. And there was only a handful of Dutch there. So you can imagine how things might have been different if they had paid that German guy a little better. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Okay. So let's fantasize about the possibility of a Dutch Taiwan. We would be Protestant. And yes. I think actually it might have been, especially when later on in the 17th century, when the Dutch would have encountered the English, when the English would have come out and fought them during the Anglo-Dutch wars. And then at that time, when the Kashingan state was here, there was an English trading post in Taiwan for a few mm -hmm. years. A factory, they called it. Yeah. The English factory. And so I think what you would have here is the English would, as in so many other places, Cape Colony, New York, they would have taken it from the Dutch. So we might have, by that path, wound up as an English colony. Mm, yeah, that and one has always interested me. Because you look at Hong Kong. Well, Hong Kong plays a huge role in the lust for Taiwan in the 19th century. Because by the middle of the 19th century, the Germans and the Americans and the French and everyone are looking at Hong Kong going, you know, well, later on in the century anyway, how come we don't have this? Where can we get this in Asia? Uh, let's not forget that originally when they uh, took Hong Kong, the guy who signed that treaty goes back to London and basically gets spanked and told- Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You got a, a rock in the middle of nowhere with like five people on it. And then it turned into one of the world's greatest trading uh, centers. <laughs> 
So yeah, Taiwan, if I was British and uh, an imperialist, I would have preferred to take Taiwan. Well, yeah. And there was some pushing for that several times throughout in the 19th century. And the English are actually my third on this list. So late in the 19th century, there was some sort of random discussion about, why don't we take Formosa and make it into a prison colony? But way back in the 1830s and 40s, if you look in geography texts from the beginning of the 19th century, 1805, 1810, the Westerners were well aware that half of the island belonged to nobody. It was not claimed by the Manchus, right? I mean, they knew that very early. And if you read like diaries and and news reports and whatnot, it's a common refrain of people passing by. Oh, we passed by Taiwan. Half the island belongs to nobody. And And we're talking about the the, eastern side. Yeah, the eastern side of Taiwan. So as early as the 1830s, Jardine of the opium fame had suggested that the British set up a colony here. And there were some of those multi-talented dudes who did survey work in India and knew 24 languages and, and all that stuff. There were several of them who throughout this period suggested that the British take Taiwan. It would be a great place to harry the Manchu fleet from. That was actually what one of them said. And then also as a then, penal colony. Well, not as a penal colony. This is before the penal colony talk. This is 1830s, 40s, 50s, right? And then about that time, Westerners started to become aware because, you know, with steamships starting to become common, they started to become aware that, hey, we can get coal in Taiwan. And this is actually another contingency that I've pointed out a couple of times. If Taiwan had had a better grade of coal, someone from Europe would definitely have grabbed this island. So the English were a possibility throughout this century, but they never really got going on it. Why? Why do you think they, because I really like the penal colony idea, why do you think they didn't, they didn't take this further? Because it's hilarious to think of Taidong right now being basically Australia. Right. I think there are several reasons. One is that it didn't solve their coal problem. And so like by volume, the largest British export, I think in the 19th century was, was hard coal for ships. And they sent that all out to Asia so that when the great white fleet of Teddy Roosevelt sailed, he sailed on British coal. And all of the powers did not have ports out here. Only the British had a port where you could fix your ships. That was one of the German motives for taking Taiwan. We need a a place where we can, you know, a dockyard where we can fix our ships. They could only do that at the British dockyard in Japan and in Hong Kong. And everyone was in the same position. So there's no strategic advantage for the British to take Taiwan. But for a penal colony, you just drop them off and you say, good luck. (laughs) I guess. But then you have to somehow enforce your sovereignty. And it so happened that in the mid-19th century, have you heard of this guy, James Horn? He set up a little fort outside Suau. Yeah. And he was backed by a German merchant. And the German merchant was actually an agent of the Prussian state. So with Prussian funding, basically, this British guy set up this independent colony in the middle of the 19th century, uh, a little later than that, on the East Coast. And he started to act like he was sovereign. He starts taxing the the local indigenous people, using them as slaves. And the Qing is furious about this. The Manchus were furious about this, but there was nothing they could do. And the British themselves came and they suppressed that colony. And Horn died off the coast of Taiwan in a sailing accident, I think on his way home from the colony after it had been shut down. That was the only thing like a British colony that ever showed up here. So, I mean, we had a couple of, you know, bombardments. And is there some place on earth where the British didn't bombard? (laughs) <laughs> if you go to uh, a, a website, they've got this great image, and maybe I'll post it on our site, showing all the countries that Britain hasn't <laughs> engaged in military conflict with. There's, the, the map is pretty, um, yeah. yeah. 
So the only one out of the ones that we've been talking about right now that I'm a little bit skeptical about is German. The German one was actually the most interesting one. It unfolded oh, twice, basically. The first time was in the 1860s. And already by then, Hong Kong was like a booming thing, right? Mm. The Perry expedition is 1854. And the Germans were like, wow, check out this expedition. It's so great. Perry had asked the Americans, can we do something about this? Can we establish a colony here? Can we put in some people? But the Germans said, we can do that. And so in 1858, they sent off this expedition to the Far East. It takes off in 1860. And they talked to this French diplomat who thought the Germans would make a great counterweight to the British. And he pointed them at Formosa. Hey, nobody's got that. It's important to remember that all of these Europeans could look back on European colonial history and say, oh, the Dutch had it, the Spanish had it. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't have it. And nobody thought of territories as like sacred soil. There were things that you traded in peace treaties and which were malleable and fungible. And the Qing dynasty really did not do a good job of even making a strong claim to all of Taiwan. If you think about the the Japanese or the Okinawan sailors who uh, got butchered down in uh, right. the Mudan thing. So the Japanese go to the Qing dynasty and say, hey, we want compensation for this. And they go, oh, well, that side of the island is not really in our, under our control. And the Japanese <laughs> say, very interesting. Yeah, that's actually another contingency, right? Because there were people in that expedition who were looking, can we establish a colony here? Mm -hmm. Which well, they, they eventually did, actually, would. before, yeah. 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 So anyway, they sent this guy in this expedition named Ferdinand Freiherr von Richthofen. And he's the guy that coined the term Silk Road. That's how he's oh. remembered by history. But they sent him to Formosa. And, you know, the Germans had been observing the British. And so they were going to model their colonization on the Brits. And they were looking to turn Formosa into the German Hong Kong. And they wanted a Prussian naval base so they could get out from under the British monopoly of naval bases. You know, Richthofen recommended that Germany annex Formosa, but other people on that expedition didn't think it was a good idea. They said, ah, oh, there's no good harbors here. It's too hot. And the other thing is that they had treaties with China and Japan. And if they took Formosa, that would cause problems with the Manchus and the Japanese. But the Navy, the German Navy wanted Formosa pretty badly. And it continued to stay in German minds. So in 1866 and 1867, there were public calls for the acquisition of colonies because the Germans could see, the German people could see that the English were rich and the French were rich because they had these colonies and the Germans didn't. And so- Okay, they, so aside from the peninsula of Liaoning where they, uh, the Germans eventually got a little bit of a foothold in there, did they have any other spot in, in our neighborhood? No, they needed a colony in the Far East to support trade. That was the way they saw it. After about 1870, all this died off, all the public calls for a colony. And then in 1884, who shows up here with troops? The French. And they grab Geelong. And the Germans are like, oh my God, look at these French. They're going to grab the whole island. And the French had chartered German merchant vessels to supply coal and other stuff, right? To supply their position in, in Geelong. And these vessels also transported stuff up and down the coast for the Manchus, for the Qing dynasty, right? And then. After that, there came the, the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95. And by then, who was in charge but Kaiser Wilhelm? And uh, he was like dreaming of colonies in the Far East. He persuaded himself that the British were about to grab Shanghai. And then he directed the German chancellor. He wrote him. He said, we got to get Formosa. And then, of course, the Japanese got it. And all of that ended. 
Mm. So the German Navy throughout this period is recommending that the Germans at least seize a port, which, as you noted, they eventually did. But throughout this period, Formosa was a, an important component of German dreams of the Far East. It just never so a lot closer to a reality than I'm uh, assuming. Well, I, I guess if the Navy had somehow carried the, the argument, there would be a German colony on Taiwan. Mm. Wild. It's crazy to think about, especially when you look at the way they behaved in Africa. So, yeah, I can't imagine German rule on Taiwan. I just can't. These are all, you know, contingencies. These are all things <laughs> that could have happened and they didn't. And so people want to say it's inevitable that China will grab Taiwan. And I'm saying, no, for two, three thousand years, highly intelligent ministers and leaders of Chinese states on the mainland of Asia never thought about Taiwan. And in fact, they didn't think about it, even though raiders would come up from Philippines. They called them the Pishai in Chinese text, the Pishai, probably Visaya people up coming up from Philippines. They would come up and they would raid the coast of China. And none of these states ever thought, maybe we should secure Taiwan, which they they knew about. I mean, they wrote about it later on, yeah. but they never had a colony and they never administrated it. And the only people who came here were merchants to trade. So, so it was just the the changeover between the Ming dynasty to the Qing dynasty and uh, Zheng Gong or Kashinga. If he had managed to stay on the mainland, if he hadn't been uh, kicked out of uh, Xiamen, perhaps. Right. Yeah. Or if the Dutch had turned him away, then all we'd have is a small bunch of Chinese settlers and a lot of indigenous people. And someone else would have grabbed Formosa for sure, especially in the 19th century. You know, when you think about the British trading post, even that was the time when the British were starting to poke around in India, too. But they didn't have the kind of technology lead that they would have a century later. Right? They had that long war with the Marathas between 1700 and I think 1750. They lost every battle. You don't hmm. find that in the history, in the British history much. <laughs> but it's not until after 1750 that they really get going in India. And if Taiwan had just been an unincorporated island off the coast, they probably would have been there. Someone would have been there. And I'm excited. So the, the British in India started getting successful, at least as I understand it, when they started pitting various Indian uh, rulers against each other, right? Yeah. So also, would that have succeeded in Taiwan as well? I, it's hard to say. There was no, there was nothing like, there was no established states here, right? So, yeah. I mean, so there's that. One tribe against another. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Dutch did. And that's what the Japanese did as well. And just like the Americans did in the Western part of the United States. I have one more. I have one more uh, theory or question. Sure. If the local people, the indigenous people, as I understand it, and I've wandered around uh, the mountains of Liu Gui and stuff down here in Kaohsiung. They tell me that there there was pretty much constant warfare, like you were on that side of the river versus this side of the river, that kind of thing. And this is pretty yeah. common in a lot of places around the world. But if right. just by some miracle, if they had come together when the, the Dutch had arrived or the Chinese for that matter, they could have easily kicked them out. There was way more of them and they were good warriors. Yeah. Even the Japanese, right? The first Japanese expedition into the highlands disappeared. They found its remains years later. So remember when the rover incident occurred, when the ship sank off the coast and everyone got ashore and then they were all killed. When that incident occurred, the Americans sent a punitive expedition to Taiwan and it was driven back to its ships. Yeah. They went to Kending in their woolen uh, suits and tried to uh, attack <laughs> in the middle of a bad idea in the middle of summer in Kending. There's the plaque in the parking lot of the, the National Aquarium down there that, that commemorates that. So, you know... When they could really work together, they could have a serious impact 
But it, it's like every indigenous group faced the same problem. Not only were the Europeans technologically powerful, but every European loss could be replaced. And when the indigenous people lost territory, it was permanent. It was a permanent loss of resources. So the idea of a unified Taiwan led by some uh, Geronimo kind of character, that's kind of my <laughs> fantasy. That would, It's not very realistic, though. Sadly, no. Sadly. Mm. Okay, so you've gone through the Spanish, the Dutch. Um, we did the the British. Who who else are Germans. we talking about next? Germans. Well, of course, the Americans, right? The Americans didn't move on the South China Sea, even though in the 1930s, far-sighted Filipinos were begging them, set down some markers here so this becomes ours. The American merchants in the 1860s, 1860s were here. Mm-hmm. And Gaochong as well. And, yeah. And of course, like everyone, they got sold a camphor monopoly. <laughs> so mm-hmm. everyone who showed up from the outside had a monopoly. <laughs> and they were concerned. They they started, basically, they started their trade with Taiwan. And they were concerned that the British were going to move in. So they wanted the Americans to annex the island so they could have it to themselves. And was and, it discussed uh, with any degree of seriousness in Washington? Yeah. Uh, but the incoming administration, which I think was the Buchanan administration, no, the Pierce administration, their secretary of state said, nah, we don't want this. We, we don't need this. We could have bought the island. I don't know if the Manchus would have sold it, but you know, who knows? They weren't making any money off it, and it was a huge headache. Hmm. So, And then there was one more time, of course, when America could have taken, effectively taken Taiwan, and that would have been after World War II. They could have declared it an American protectorate, for example. And uh, I interviewed these very uh, interesting, uh, perhaps not um, totally sane individuals who <laughs> who do believe that we are still part of Japan and an American protectorate. And they've got their own flag and they've got their own license plates they put on their cars. I think you know this group that I'm talking about. Yeah, I know and, that group. Well, I'm yeah, not going to name it. <laughs> yeah, neither will I. <laughs> but... Uh, Seriously, like America could have uh, gone with the protectorate idea after World War II because it makes sense. The Qing gave Taiwan to Japan, but then by the time World War II was over, the Qing are long gone. So why does China get to take back something that wasn't theirs? I guess because they had possession. Chiang Kai-shek not only got to accept the Japanese surrender in Formosa, he also got it north of the 16th parallel, was it, in Vietnam? Mm. And they so, got to sign the, the UN charter as the first ones, as I, as I recall. Yeah. So he was accepting all these surrenders in the Far East on behalf of the Allies. And that's one reason they got in. But they got in there because the Americans were their usual ignorant selves. The people at the bottom were screaming, we can't let this guy here. They'll grab it. We should make it a protectorate. Who was saying that? Uh, George Kerr, right? Yeah. And yeah. there were a bunch of other trade. people who pointed that out that this was a really dumb idea to let the Guomindang come over and occupy the island because they're never going to let the Taiwanese have their own state. And we needed the island, right, to keep a lid as part of the first island chain to keep a lid on the communists. You also have to keep an eye on Japan. And America did that by holding on to Okinawa until much later than most people think. Yes. And we were still, when when did we give the Philippines independence? 46, 47? Uh, Yeah. And so- it would have made a very strategic protectorate. And Americans just don't don't seem to have that ability to think with that kind of strategy. American planners, they just weren't thinking. But it's it would have been a possibility. I mean, technically speaking, it was a joint occupation with the United States. So they could have had a much larger role. And the other yeah. thing was, of course, CKS had Time Magazine on his side. So many people were working for his interests in the United States. 
Yeah, this has been fun. I think that there's a lot of people who probably are not able to follow all of these little things. But what I'll do is <laughs> uh, you, you've written about all of this stuff. So I'll put all of this up on our website, links to blog posts and stuff. So people who are interested can take a look. But I think the, the main takeaway that I'm hearing from you is that the idea that Taiwan is connected or a part of or was always Chinese is... Yes, it's not inevitable. It's an anomaly. And it's the result of very specific historical circumstances. That's why my favorite contingency is the, is the Spanish thing, because if the Spanish were here, we don't have Chinese here in great numbers. We just have a few merchants around the ports. That, for me, is the most interesting possibility, the possibility of Spanish Taiwan. But just remember, whenever you think about Taiwan and China together, you're affected by you know 70 or 80 years of People's Republic of China propaganda that tries to link them. And, of course, Republic of China propaganda. All right. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today and meeting you for the first time. Thank you for being on. And uh, like I said, I'll be getting those links from you and posting them on our site so people who are interested can do a, a deep, deeper dive. All right. Well, thank Thanks you. Thanks so much, Mr. Turton.